and we will continue in this great passage after finally reaching the exit of the dungeon last week. And as we did, we were able to see what was on the other side of the, the door, and, and it was glorious news for, for sinners. For weeks, we have been looking into the darkness, into the darkness of, of humanity, and ultimately in our own hearts. And Paul gave us this, this torch, this little light, uh, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, here's the gospel. The power of God is revealed in it, and he basically says, I'll explain more later, but now let me tell you why you need it. And so he takes us down into the dungeon for those three chapters, and we beheld the fallenness of mankind. There's none righteous. There's none that are able to be right with God. All have sinned, natural men, moral men, Gentiles, Jews all receive the, same, receive the same judgment because all are in bondage to, to sin. And possessing that universal guilt, God took us to court. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we, we just got out of court. The, the gavel has just fallen. The evidence was presented against us during that closed by the case that was laid out against us. And, and in that silence, the silence in the courtroom then then God speaks and the verdict is, is read. Verse 19, all the world has then become accountable or guilty before God. And with those words, our condemnation was, was complete. And with nothing but God's judgment to expect, um, Paul, which Paul already told us, was without partiality. We have no hope even in, you know, God's favor because of who we are or background or anything else. In that predicament, we stood at the dungeon door, headed for what we assumed was the firing squad, and as the guard grasps the handle to pull the door open, instead of judgment, what we found on the other side of the door was a promise of a pardon. Instead of hearing the rifle bolts being loaded we heard the footsteps of the prodigal's father running toward us. We know what should be there. What should be there is the wrath of God um, from the God that we despised and rejected, but instead we, we find on the other side of the dungeon door that there was a righteousness provided by God, and it's been offered apart from the, the law, flooding through the door like, like a blinding light. It's the the very righteousness that we need as, as the guilty and the righteousness that we need condemned by that, that very law. One that we can't generate, one that's not ours ourselves. We found on the other side of the door a righteousness that provides a completely and utterly different verdict than the one that we, we currently have in a righteousness that God's granted to us or gifted to us comes from outside of us. It's a foreign righteousness that provides full redemption. Look, if you would, at verse 24, because this is kind of the, the center of the passage. Being justified, there's the verdict, as a gift by His grace, there's the, it's given to us, it's gifted to us, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's the righteousness that we need and who it comes through. It's, it's supplied in a way where justice is served by a substitute prisoner. 
a replacement criminal who is no criminal at all. He's, he's sinless. Look if you would at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, God's righteous justice. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at this present time so that He would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So where our execution blindfold was, was supposed to be hanging or folded Someone else was already there with our blindfold on, in our place, holding in his hand a record of our sins. And the gun, the trigger was, was pulled. And that was in the cross of Jesus. So then in the cross of Jesus, the righteousness of God's justice is displayed. And in that substitution, God is both just and the justifier. He judges sin and then he grants righteousness to people who are not righteous. It's a, the, the judicial declaration as you are righteous even though we're not for those who place their trust in, in Jesus. That's the scene that's before us again today in verse 21 through 26. It's called the heart of the letter of Romans, and after looking at it, we can understand why. It's good news for sinners. If you don't think that you're a sinner of this kind, the kind that Paul has, has went over with us, then, then you won't hear any of this as good news. It, it, will be, it will be more like answering a robocall or a, or a telemarketer. Yeah, yeah, that, that, okay, move along. But to us... It's the glory of God. It's the, the power of God. It's, it's, our, it's our joy. So in verse 21, Paul picks back up where he, he left off all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And now he's back to explain to us what he means. How is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel? And that's the main point that Paul wants to establish in his letter the availability of God's righteousness to all who come in faith. And both of those things will be key in our text today. To all and by faith. That's what this passage teaches. We, we put the outline together this way. Three ways God's righteousness is revealed in the coming and the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, the first way is God's righteousness is publicized in the coming of Christ. It's, it's realized. It's... It's here. The second way is God's righteousness is provided through the person of Christ. Salvation is in Him. And the third way is God's righteousness is proven, you can think demonstrated, through the cross of Christ, in verses 25 and 26. We got part of the way through the first one, and that's where we'll pick up today. The first way, God's righteousness is revealed is it's publicized in the coming of Jesus. Look, if you would, at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul says the righteousness that we need to get into heaven is, comes to us apart from human merit. It's apart from the law. It's realized in Christ. It's promised in the Old Testament and where we'll pick up today. It's available through faith, faith alone, in fact. And Paul makes this contrast between 
between what he's been talking about to, to now in a dramatic fashion. In verse 21, he says, but now. And you should be thinking, now what? But now, here is God's answer to the human dilemma. But now, here is God's remedy for our lack of righteousness, for our condemnation. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said these are beautiful words, but now. I once was blind, but now I see. I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's the idea here. Now, God has provided His own righteousness. Apart from the law, openly displayed, and promised beforehand in the Old Testament. And it's here. Now it's here. That's the idea in verse 21 of the word manifested. It, it means a promise that's, that's finally realized. It's finally arrived in the coming of Jesus. And Jesus put that on display. He fulfilled that, that promise. He, he brought it into view. His coming brought it into view. Laid it open in, in full sight. And that's what the Old Testament's been waiting for. Because Jesus Christ's coming was the fulfillment of God's promise that God Himself would provide His own Lamb, and that He would reckon those righteousness, uh, reckon those righteous who, who trust in Him. That at Jesus Christ's cross, God, God chose that to be the place where His judgment and mercy would meet, and there, in Christ's own blood, He would atone once for all for sin. And now, God's way of righteousness, now that's happened, God's way of righteousness is laid open in full view through the coming of Christ. That's why He came. Not to give you philosophical teachings to help you become righteous. Not as the new perspective on Paul uh, teaches, uh, N.T. Wright or Dunn or others, to say it, that Christ came to give you new insights, new revelation on Moses, so now you can just continue to be faithful. Christ came to bring you and, and me what we desperately needed, His righteousness, because we have none. There's none righteous. And what he provides is gained by, by faith. That's what he says here in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Notice the emphasis. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now Paul says the righteousness that we need from God to get into heaven is available through faith. It's available through faith alone. I mean, Paul repeats the subject matter for clarity's sake. Uh, this is the second time he calls it the righteousness of God. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested, even the righteousness of God through faith. It's, it's not human righteousness. It's God's righteousness. And now he says that comes to you, to the sinner, to those who would be saved through, through faith. God provides it. And we gain it through personal and particular faith. It's the, this is the, the view from the human side of the coin, if you will, or how we receive it. God had promised it. He, he, he manifested it. He, he, he exposed it. He revealed it. it. It's in Christ, and now it's gained by us. How do we get, how do we get it? It's explained in one of these many prepositional phrases that are that are peppered throughout this amazing phrase. Say that really fast. Prepositional phrases peppered through this amazing passage. They matter greatly. All through this passage. The subject matter is the righteousness of God. I never knew how important English was until I started studying the Bible. I wish I'd have paid more attention to my mother. 
that's what we're talking about here. The subject is the righteousness of God. The righteousness that he just told us is apart from the law, something you can't earn. It's, it's apart from human merit. It's promised and fulfilled in Christ. That righteousness is through faith. Meaning faith is the, is the vehicle. Faith is the, the link. It's the way that that, that righteousness is appropriated uh, or gained by us. It's the way that verdict is laid to our account. In fact, it has to be that way because it's God's righteousness, remember? I mean, it's apart from, from human merit. It's what the Reformers called sola fide, Latin for faith alone. And if it's not by law but through faith, then it's without any mixture of our efforts or works or faith alone. So that's how we receive it. But, but if the righteousness of God is what we need and that, that what, what awaits is the executioner on the other side of that dungeon door, for anybody who doesn't have this kind of faith, you don't have the righteousness of God, you're not getting into heaven, then, then that's a pretty important topic. I mean, what is this faith? What is this link that, that we need? What appropriates this righteousness of, of God? What is it? What is faith? I mean, you ask different people, you're going to get a, a lot of different answers. I mean, is it sincerity? I mean, faith means that you really, 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 really believe. I can remember hearing people when somebody would walk the aisle and they would pray and they would assure them, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and did you call on the Lord? Yeah, I called on the Lord. Were you sincere? Yeah, I was really sincere. And then they walk away from Christ or the church a month later, six months later, they say, well, they must have not been sincere. And is that what faith is? Sincerity? You must really believe? I mean, is it, is it trust? You've probably heard it described that way. I've heard it described that way. Faith means holy leaning on Jesus' name. We sing of that. It's described as if you were riding in a cable car which holds you up over the, the canyon gorge. You're... You're placing your trust, your full trust in that car or in that cable to carry you. If it doesn't, you're toast. You're going down. Is that what it is? Is it trust? Is it intellectual? I mean, does faith have some content? Is there something you're believing, some objective truth? Or is it just authenticity and sincerity? I mean, in, is faith in the Jesus of the Mormons the same as faith in the Jesus of the Baptists? Uh, is there some content that goes along with faith that matters, or does it not matter at all? I mean, what about obedience? Does it involve obeying? Is it belief alone? Or followed by submission? I mean, we know works is not part of faith because the Bible clearly says that, but, but in faith, is there some act of submission that, that goes along with it, that's coupled with it, that, that's part of faith? And, and are there any affections that, that are part of it? I mean, some will point to feelings or emotions as an evidence. I mean, I wept upon seeing Christ and understanding Christ as my substitute. Does that mean I had faith? And if you didn't weep, that, they, that you didn't have faith? So what is it? What's all of those things? Let me give you a, a definition of, of faith. This is a very simple definition, but it's packed. Faith is your believing response to a promise of God. In its simplest form, that's what faith is. It's a believing, your believing response to a promise of, of God. Your believing 
And your belief is a response to something that God promised, meaning He's the one that's going to bring it to pass. It's sincere. You're really believing. You're not double-minded, and it's, it's trusting. You're, you're looking to God with full reliance on whatever that promise is. It, it's, it's intellectual. I mean, you understand what you're trusting in. It's not mystical. It's not unknown. It's based on something specific, something objective, an objective promise of God. And, and it does involve a, a response or obedience. I mean, the gospel is not only an invitation, but it's a command. Repent and believe. You, you respond to that command. Submit to God. Call upon the name of the Lord. Be saved. You're, you're submitting to, to God when you do that. The, the apostles preached He is both Lord and Christ. And if you've experienced all of that, you will surely, that will surely produce affection. You'll surely love God and be thankful for Him, whether that comes out in tears or not. Notice this saving faith, though, if that's what it is, your believing response to a promise of God, what's the promise? What's the object? Notice this faith has an object. Look back at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, so it's His righteousness, that righteousness comes to us through faith, and it's faith in an object, faith in Jesus Christ. There's another prepositional phrase. There, there's gold in these, these words, in and through. There's glory in these prepositional phrases. Paul adds an objective genitive to the through faith. It's faith in someone, being, being Jesus. It's not just faith in general. Not just faith in God, it's faith in Jesus Christ. He's the object of faith that saves. If He's not the object of your faith, His worth, and His work, then your faith will not save you. And there's a, a modern trend um, to look at this another way. I, I hesitate to even bring this up to you because most of you won't pay attention to this, but it's probably more than you want to know. But, but I don't want you to be confused. There's some who will say that the way you take this is not faith in Jesus, but the faithfulness of Jesus. It's subjective uh, rather than, than objective. And the reason I bring this up is you might see it in some modern translations and maybe get confused. It will say, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And they're saying it is the faithfulness of Jesus, or Jesus' faithfulness that brings God's righteousness. Now, that's possible grammatically, but unlikely contextually. The good news is both are true. <laughs> the truth remains either way. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith, and it's His faithfulness that passively gives us the record of God's righteousness. Christ, as the, the, the last Adam, did what the first Adam and what you and I failed to do. He was faithful, even though we were unfaithful. But that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point, his whole point, is not at this moment what Jesus has done, but what we do to receive him. How do we respond to God's promise? And you can see that in what's coming in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is all going to be about Abraham. It's all going to be about faith. Abraham exercised faith. Abraham believed God, and we must believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's exactly what he states specifically next. Can we be sure of that translation? I think we can. Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, that's what we're talking about, comes to us through faith. The object of our faith is in Jesus Christ, and it's for all those who believe. So the, the topic here is belief, personal faith. 
So Paul says the righteousness of God comes to a sola sola fide, through faith alone. It's in solus Christus, in Christ alone. And this righteousness is available to all who believe. And I'm sorry I don't know Latin for all who believe. The point is Paul's not just being redundant here. I mean, he's emphasizing the way of righteousness, which is believing, is now open and available to all. That's his point. For all those who, who believe. He's declaring that the Messiah is not just available to the Jews, but he's also the Savior of the Gentiles. Both are believing in the Son. If, if you want to be saved even today, Jew or Gentile, all It's available to all, and it's through the the Son. The promise of Abraham is available for all mankind. It's only available through Christ, but it's available to anyone who has faith in Him. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive in the way to God. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I mean, people, frankly, don't care whether you and I believe in Jesus You can be religious and you can believe in whatever you want, but the minute that you say Jesus Christ is the only way to God, now you have a fight on your hands. But this is exactly what Jesus said. It's exactly what the Bible says. The way to God is exclusive. It's only through Jesus Christ. But it's also inclusive in the offer to God. It's offered to to all. It's freely given to all. It's limited Matthew 7, 13, enter through the the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through that gate, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there be few who find it. It's a a narrow way. It's a limited way. There's only one way. It's, It's through Christ. And unfortunately, that passage says that there are more people going to hell than they are going to heaven. So it's limited. But the offer is universal. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the, the knowledge of the, of the truth. Michael did a great job a couple Sunday nights ago talking about the difference between what God desires and what He ordains. But you must not obstruct or confuse either of those two things. You must not restrict or limit the free offer of the gospel, which is to every man, woman, boy, or girl. It's a good news to be pro- proclaimed to all the world. You're to go to make, make disciples of all nations. Uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I mean, you may love the sovereignty of God even in salvation as I do, and you should. But any theology or system, no matter what you call it, that limits the offer of the gospel is error. It's what's called hyper-Calvinism by church historians. You only offer the gospel to those who are showing signs of God's work, of conviction in them. And a lot of people get this term confused. I hear the term thrown around a lot. People will define a Calvinist, somebody who believes in that God is sovereign in salvation. They'll define that as a hyper-Calvinist, which is someone who limits the free offer of the gospel. Let me explain the difference to you. A hyper-Calvinist would say, I'm quoting right now, Christ is only the Savior of the elect, in in one sense he is, and therefore it cannot be the duty of the non-elect to believe in him for a salvation not provided for them, which is not correct. Because all people stand already condemned. 
because they believe not in the only begotten Son of God. The hyper-Calvinists would say offering the gospel to someone who's showing no signs of God's work in them, no conviction, only increases their guilt and their damnation. And we shouldn't do that. I mean, they read Romans 3 like you did, and you see that it's no way out of that prison unless God reaches into the prison and, and gives you a way out, enlightens you, makes you alive. There's no way out. And they'd say, well, we, then we better not preach the gospel to somebody that's still locked up in the prison unless we have some evidence that God's doing something in them because that'll do them more harm. It'll just increase their condemnation. And their motive might be good, but their application is very wrong. The problem with that is it's the free offer of the gospel to sinners that God actually uses to bring sinners to himself. I mean, that's the offer that, that we hang our hat on. I mean, that's what we respond to. Or as Spurgeon said, the, the gospel is offered to sinners, not to saints. <laughs> that's what Romans 4 will say. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Or while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's the free offer of the gospel that the Spirit actually uses to call us to faith and repentance. He, he calls us while we're separated from God in our sin. God's offer of the gospel is the promise that we respond to. Come to me. Call upon me. Spurgeon, in his battle with the hyper-Calvinists of his day, said this. He, he said that they actually got the cart before the horse. Here's Spurgeon. He says, In our own day, certain preachers assure us that a man must be regenerated before we bid him to believe in Jesus Christ. Some degree of a work of grace in the heart being, in their judgment, the only warrant to believe. This is also false. It takes away a gospel for sinners and offers, a gospel, offers us a gospel for saints. Brethren, the, the command to believe in Christ must be the sinner's warrant. If you consider the nation of our commission, how runs it or what is it? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It ought to read, according to the hyper-Calvinists, preach the gospel to every regenerate person, to every convinced sinner, to every sensible sinner. But it is not so. It is to every creature. Uh, Donald McLean, uh, an English Presbyterian writing for the Banner of Truth, said this. It is one of the glories of the gospel that it is universal in scope. There is nothing narrow or limited about the good news of salvation. It is Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. For all the nations, this truth has inspired the great missionary movements of the church. It has led to the world being turned upside down on many occasions, like, like Acts 17.6. And it is still changing lives through the world today. Because of the, universe, uh, the universality of the gospel offer, the day is coming, Revelation 7.9, when a great multitude, which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues will stand before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes. It is my privilege to open up to you now this world-changing, free, unrestricted offer of the gospel to all. And both of those men are avowed Calvinists. Spurgeon said, I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. <laughs> he must have done that for reasons unknown to me. 
For I can never find any reason myself why he should have looked upon me with such special love. I say amen. So you must not limit the unlimited offer of the gospel to sinners on any one of them. But on the flip side, you must, while you must not limit the, off, uh, the offer, you must not re- re- remove the exclusivity being in Christ or the necessity of God's power to receive it. You must not use the gospel to undermine God's sovereignty and you must not use God's sovereignty to undermine the gospel offer. Salvation is a work that God alone can accomplish. That's what Paul just got done showing us in that final cell. You're totally depraved. Paul just showed us no man seeks after God, nobody understands, no one even cares because we're all under sin and bondage to sin. I mean, how does a man or a person like that in the third cell, and that's all of us, how how do you get out of that condition? I mean, how do, you, how do you gain new desires when you don't have them? I mean, how do, you, how do you go from opening the Bible and it just being dead and boring, and I don't care anything about that, to hanging on every word? How does that happen? How do they see their need? How do they recognize the object that, that can save them is the very one that they hate? I mean, how do you come to love God rather than, than sin? It's a miracle of God, I tell you. It's not something that you do. It's not something that you just decided to do one, one morning by, by some act of your will. It, it's a work of God. It's a miracle. God alone grants eyes to see. God alone convinces the sinner. God alone gives new life. God is always the initiator in, in saving. And, and He is free to show mercy to whomever He wants to. But He does that through the free and unlimited offer of the gospel to sinners. In fact, that's how faith is generated by the Spirit in the heart. Faith comes by hearing, right? And the faith that that person who hears and exercises is their own. It's free from compulsion. That faith is real. D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist but a very imprecise theologian, oversimplified it, but it may be helpful to you, so... What I mean by that is follow Moody's zeal, not his theology, okay? Here's what he said. Hanging over heaven's gate, facing outward, are the words, whosoever will, let him come. And once you enter, the backside of that same gate reads, chosen from before the foundation of the world. The gospel is available to all. It's offered to all because all need it. Here's number two. Second way God's righteousness is revealed is it's provided in the cross of Jesus Christ. All need it from God, verses 22 and 23, there's no distinction. And all gain it as a gracious gift, verse 24. If you would at verse 22, the end of it. For there is no distinction, so he's explaining what he, what he's just got done saying. Even a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. And then he explains even more. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You probably memorized that with the Romans Road when you're offering that free gospel to all people. Paul inserts this like a, like a little reminder. Don't forget, Doug Moose says it's a, it's a summary in a few words of chapter 1 through chapter 3. There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile in judgment. All will be judged without partiality. But it's also much more than that. It's also declaring there is no distinction in grace. 
Verse 22, the solution is also offered to them without distinction. So it's not just about sin. They both come the same way. You come through faith in Jesus Christ. They both personally believe, Jew and Gentile. No distinction means there's no difference. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody needs the cross, and everybody needs the grace that comes through the cross. There's no difference in how all people stand before God and how all people come to God, which is by grace. Then he elaborates why. Verse 23. Here's a further explanation of his point. There's no difference or no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the, of the glory of God. I mean, Gentiles may claim to be religious at heart. Jews may claim to be moral. People born in the church may claim to worship the right God the right way. But Paul says none of that makes any difference. Because every person has sinned. And therefore every person will be judged. And just as important... Every person, no matter who they are, falls short of the target, so they need grace to reach the target. It means to measure up. They fail to measure up to it. There are two verbs here. All have sinned and all are falling short. So Paul kind of draws the noose here of, the, of his argument into one sentence. No one can escape. All have sinned. And then with his second statement, he tells us the consequence of that sin, all, that, that sin, that sin nature. Unless someone removes that sin nature completely, we will continue to fall short. So we need righteousness outside of ourselves, and we need grace to bring us from where we're at to where we, where we, where we need to be. Falling short means to, to lack, to lag behind, to fail to reach the goal. And notice he tells us what the goal is. What do we fall short of? We fall short of the glory of, of God which is what we were created to do, bring glory to God. And you've probably heard that before. I was made to bring the glory to God. You, you, you may have a t-shirt that says something like that. We were created for God's glory. What does that mean? You're right, you were. What does it mean to bring glory to God? What is God's glory? Well, God's glory is who He is. It's, it, it's the expression of His person. It's, it's just like the Old Testament phrase, the, the name of the Lord. We say the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Uh, call upon the name of the Lord. And whenever we say that, His name is a reflection of, of all that He is. Packed in the name of the Lord is everything that God is. And God's glory is similar to that. Isaiah 6 explains it well, I, I think. Isaiah 6, 3, you know, when Isaiah gets this throne room vision that's there and he hears the angels, what they say about God, they that's what they say, Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is thrice holy, and His holiness is His uniqueness. Now we have another term, God's glory, God's holiness. When we say something is holy, we, we mean it's set apart. The, the utensils in the temple were, were holy. They were, they were set apart for a specific use and specific purpose. You didn't, the priest didn't use the utensils in the temple at home in, their, in, in cooking or whatever they were doing. Uh, it's something that's set apart for a specific use. So we are to be a holy people unto the Lord, meaning we're God's people. We're not common like the world. We're set apart from the world unto God. But the Bible also tells us we're to be holy as God is holy. So God is separate and He's set apart 
And he is unlike anyone or anything in all of his creation. He's unlike anything that, or anyone. That's what Isaiah means here. He's unlike, unlike, unlike. He's unique, unique, unique in his person. He's holy, holy, holy. Psalm 113, verses 5 through 6 says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? The psalmist asks, Who is like the Lord? And the answer is no one. He's unique in person. And he's not just unique, he's holy, holy, holy. And we were created to reflect that holiness, that uniqueness of God. And that's what the parallel part of Isaiah's verse says. Look at what else it says. The whole earth is full of His uniqueness. The whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is full of His holiness. That's what you'd expect Isaiah to say, but it says the whole earth is full of God's glory, and that's what glory is. It's God's holiness. It's it's His person put on display. Or as John Piper said, God's glory is His holiness gone public. In the universe, God's unique person is displayed. Right? Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. What does that mean? The heavens glow? The heavens display God, who He is, His power. All that God is, who God is, every one of His attributes are publicly displayed in creation, in an aspect of creation. That's what Romans 1.20 told us. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... Even His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. They've been clearly manifested, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. People are without excuse. Who is God? What is God? He's put on display. So back to our verse in Romans 3. Due to sin, we all fall short of God's glory. We all fail to reflect who God is and which was our job in creation as an image bearer. Our goal, our job, while we're created to bear God's image, which is unique from all other aspects of creation, is we are to reflect God. And Paul says because of our sin, all people, Jew and Gentile, fail to fulfill their purpose. And they continue to fail to fulfill, that, to fulfill their purpose. So they need grace to get them from where they're at to where they need to be. They fail to display God in their lives. They fall short of that goal. Human beings who are made in the image of God to image Him in the world because of sin and our sin nature, we fail to do that. And the tense of the verb shows this is a timeless truth. We continue to fail to do that. And that's also why in salvation, you're being made into the image of Christ. You're predestined to be conformed to His image. You're not in His image right now, not yet, but that's the goal. That's what you'll end up like in heaven. In Christ, you have the, now the ability to reflect that glory. It's restored. You're conformed to His image. You regain the capacity. The part of the fall that kept you from doing that is removed, and it's removed progressively. The process will be completed when you're raised in heaven and you stand in the very presence of God. So past, present, and future part of your, of your salvation recovers all of that. Uh, at faith, the penalty of sin was removed and you're justified before God. You have a, a new verdict. You're no longer a guilty sinner. You're now a righteous saint. Me? A righteous saint? Yeah. 
you're not, but you now have the declaration of Christ. And then as you grow, you're sanctified, and the power of sin has been broken in your life, but, but then you, you gradually overcome the, the power of sin. Sin's grip is loosened. Uh, it's loosed more and more as you learn the Bible and submit to the Word. And then finally, when you're raised, when you're, when you're glorified, raised in the future, the very presence of sin will be completely removed, and you will be like the Lord in all of His glory, and you'll reflect His glory in heaven. That's what God's doing in your salvation. And that's why no law could ever accomplish that. No human will could ever accomplish that. I mean, what can the law, how can the law undo your sin? I mean, how can it undo what you've already done? Even if you start today keeping it, but you can't. How can keeping a moral code restore the image of God that that you marred in the fall? I mean, how can a religious system give you holy desires to love God and hate sin? How can commandments free your will to come to God when you're deaf, dumb, and dead? I mean, it, it, it can't. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can. That's freely offered to you if you'll repent and believe. And God's promises, He promises that and He provides all of that by grace alone, which we'll look at next time. Let me just give you a little preview, verse 24. He goes on, more prepositional phrases, being justified as a gift by grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. But you have to understand your need for grace before you'll ever turn to God to receive it. Let me uh, close with a, I think it's a helpful story by James Montgomery Boyce when he was preaching this text. Boyce said he once thought, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, was, it once belonged to the previous section, going over this. He said, I always stumbled at it, talking about our guilt again when God's already opened the door. We're out of the dungeon. We're, we're now in the light. We're talking about the gospel. He said, this verse seemed like, a, like an intrusion since it started talking about our sin again when Paul had already transitioned to the glories of our salvation. He said that was until he understood the connection between this verse and grace, this next verse about grace. He said the reason we do not appreciate grace, we don't think we need grace, is we don't really believe Romans 3.23. And he used Spurgeon to explain what he meant. He says Spurgeon uh, told a story of a preacher in his little book, All of Grace, of a preacher from northern England who went to call on a poor woman that he knew, the preacher knew, that this woman needed help. She was destitute. And so with money in hand from the church, he, he makes the trek all the way through the poor section of, uh, of the city where she lived. He climbs four flights of steps to this tiny attic apartment, and he, he knocks on the door. He waits for, for an answer. There was no answer. He knocked again. Still no answer. So, so after waiting a while, he went away. And the next week, he, he saw the woman in church, and he goes up to her, and he, and he tells her, I mean, he knew of her need, and, and he's been trying to help her, so he said, I, I called at your room the other day, but you were not home. And, and the woman said, well, what time did you call? And the preacher said, um, about noon. And the woman said, oh, dear, uh, I heard you knocking, but I did not answer because I thought it was the man calling for the rent. 
And Boyce says that's a good illustration of grace and our natural inability to appreciate it. He said most of us laugh at that story, and I did too when I first read it, but we fail to identify with it. We laugh at the poor woman because we consider ourselves very different from her because she was unable to pay her rent. We know people like that that are unable to pay their rent. We feel sorry for them. We want to carry money to them across town, but we think that's not our condition. We can pay. We can pay our bills here, and we're, we're suppo- we also suppose that we can pay our bill in heaven. Even if it's not the full amount, we can make a down payment and then kind of add to the rest of it. Maybe God will fill in the rest because he's gracious and merciful. So we bar the door. Not because we're afraid that God is coming to collect the rent. We know that rent is due, but because we fear he is coming with grace, and we do not want to hand out because we don't consider our situation so desperate. Listen. Dear friend, you do not have enough money to pay sin's bill. In fact, whatever little money that you do, it doesn't even come close to getting you to the gap of falling short of God's glory. You you must open the door to grace whenever it comes knocking. And when it does, key is the... Faith is the key that will unlock the door, and the door is Jesus Christ... And Christ alone will walk you through that door. But before you ever see your need of Him, before the gospel ever turns into something more than a robocall or a telemarketer, before it ever becomes something so precious that you would be willing to sell the field or the pearl of great price and forsake all for it, you must see your need of grace. Until you see that need, It'll be nice, but it won't be necessary. And that's the difference. That's what God does in salvation. He turns Jesus from nice to necessary, and when you get there, then you call upon the name of the Lord. And that is freely offered to anyone who will repent and believe. Let me pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word. Such beauty. There is glory in those prepositions. The righteousness of God, righteousness that we need, it's provided by you. Through faith, in Christ, for all who believe, because we're all in the same condition, and we remain there without grace. Thank you for that grace, Lord. Help us see not that, that we just need you a little, that we're totally bankrupt apart from you. Help us, Father, realize that apart from your welfare, your handout, we have no hope. But in that, we have all the hope in the world. Jesus, I pray that you would be exalted through saving sinners even today. Thank you that you've saved us. In Christ's name, amen.